0: Welcome to Divorce Dialogues, I'm Katherine Miller, founder at the Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding in Conflict. I am on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And I'm really excited. My guest today is John P. Cannon. He's a husband, a father, a soldier, and a counselor. He's founder of the firm Cannon Associates, and he provides fierce advocacy for families and freedom. His firm focuses on military divorce and criminal defense in central Oklahoma. He's a former assistant attorney general, prosecutor, and currently serves as the operational law attorney for the 45th Infantry Brigade, the Thunderbirds the Oklahoma National Guard. Welcome, John. It is a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Thank you, Catherine, for having me today.
0: Yeah, so you know what's really interesting, and maybe a lot of people out there don't know, but military divorce is really different from non-military divorce. Is that right?
1: It is. And one of the great benefits of military divorce is as the complexities that make it different are federal rules. And so what we're going to speak to today is really the law or rules for divorces in every state in the country.
0: So how is that different from somebody who's not in the military? And this is for active military, right?
1: The majority we're going to discuss today is primarily for active military, but a number of these rules affect reservists and National Guardsmen as well.
0: So what does somebody who's in in the military have to think about in terms of getting divorced that somebody who's not in the military doesn't need to think about?
1: One of the benefits our federal government has bestowed on people that serve is when you decide to raise your right hand and swear to defend the Constitution, you have things that our government's intended to benefit you and your family for the rest of your life if you complete your career. And so there's retirement issues to consider, there's health care issues to consider, multiple versions of income that need to be considered for alimony and spouse support purposes, as well as benefits beyond retirement.
0: So maybe we could take those sort of one at a time and start maybe with talking about alimony which we call maintenance in New York and I know various states call different things but what is it called in the military?
1: Uh, it's typically called spousal support.
0: Okay. And how does that are the rule if you're stationed in Oklahoma or stationed in New York or wherever and you are uh, getting divorced and one or uh, one member of the family is in the military? What are the spousal support rules around divorce?
1: So all of the military has decided to interject itself into a number of issues for military divorce and separation. When someone is entitled or not entitled to spousal support or maintenance is an issue for state court. But the important thing is making sure that if you're representing the non-service member, that you're able to present to your clients or the court a complete picture of the income or income potential of the other party. So basically, if, if I work at a business, I have a salary and maybe a bonus structure. If you work in the military, you have your base income, you have the potential for a housing allowance, which is called a BAH, and it's decided based on where you live. So where you are in New York is much more expensive than the Oklahoma City area where I live and Tinker Air Force Base and Vance Air Force Base, Fort Sill in Oklahoma has lower BAH amounts. So if someone lives in the greater New York area around one of the bases in, in your region, their BAH would be higher than someone here. There's also per diem that people receive every day for food and other allowances. If your client or the opposing party was entitled to combat pay, and if someone has a disability rating from the Department of Veterans Affairs they're likely receiving disability income every single month now a unique issue for reservists or national guardsmen is that typical weekend warrior that's what my that's what I do uh weekends of drill and then annual training in the summer well a number of reservists or guardsmen can go on additional orders which entitles them to sometimes substantial substantial additional income so as opposed to a divorce not involving a service member, the sources of income can become very complex in determining what someone in Oklahoma law, the need uh, of the service, the non-service member, but the ability to pay is what really can change because it's not as simple as just a salary. There's multiple sources of income that can be used to determine the total income for spouse and support purposes.
0: And it also sounds like it can change depending on where the person is based, the the serviceman is based, or service person, I should say.
1: Certainly, especially the BAH by itself. Also, if you have uh, additional dependents, then you receive income compensation for that. Typically, that's not factored in for division or for divorce, because your entitlement for your spouse no longer exists. But you do have entitlements as an active duty member for minor dependents. And that's a form of income as well.
0: And I know that, John Cannon, that the rules about divorcing someone who's in the military. So if you have a a client or a person, I mean, we're, I think our listeners are people, mostly not lawyers, that is married to someone in, in the military and you need to tell them you want to get divorced, which we call giving them service. The rules about that are special. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. Tell us about that.
1: Well, just as, as we recall back to Penoy versus Neth and territoriality, if you avail yourself of the jurisdiction, we don't necessarily have the right as a service member to say that we're going to be somewhere or not. Often your commander tells you where to be. So proper service is a complex issue because if someone has chosen to be in their jurisdiction, then they may be subject to the court's jurisdiction. But otherwise, there's oftentimes that someone would find themselves in a venue and have the other party want to initiate proceedings there, but they should not be forced to handle their divorce case or their child custody case in that location. And in our jurisdiction in Oklahoma, typically what we advise is for someone to enter a special appearance and then to object or contest the jurisdiction and have the court decide that issue first. Because if someone enters an appearance, drafts an answer or counter-petition, then they will potentially be submitting themselves to jurisdiction there or confessing the jurisdictional issue.
0: So John Cannon, I, I really have a question to, for you about maybe what leads up to divorce in the military. Do you think that the military is more likely or less likely or about the same rate of divorce than in the general population?
1: The rate of divorce across the military, in my understanding, is pretty comparable. It's the same community, is just a different makeup. Uh, however, the numbers do increase for percentages of divorces with service members that have had substantial combat experience or just the the requirements of being away from the family for longer periods of time. But the research in the military indicates that the rate of divorce, the rate of DUIs, the rate of other troubles is pretty comparable in the military to the general population.
0: And do you think that it goes up for people who are in active combat because they're physically separated from their families, or is it the stress of i mean what must be an incredible stress on the individual or something else?
1: The research shows both, and just like any other profession where you're required to be away from your family for a great period of time that that causes stress on the relationship and that's just one of the sacrifices that service members make when they Sign up and offer to serve wherever they're called to serve.
0: You're listening to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Catherine Miller, and we're here every other Wednesday on WVOX 1460 AM, as well as available on the podcast, which is on the podcast website, divorcedialogues.com, and all popular podcast apps. And I'm talking to a military attorney, John Cannon, today about divorce in the military and about the special rules that affect uh, military divorces. And I know, John Cannon, that. You have a lot of experience. You know, in the in the general population, people are facing, you know, a choice of process in order to figure out how they're going to get divorced. You know, go to mediation, litigation, work it out themselves, or work in the collaborative divorce process. Is that similar for people in military? Is there a number of people who go to mediation or some other alternative dispute process?
1: I found that typically service members walk through the process in a similar way as, everyday person. It just, they may have different issues at play and different interests that they're trying to protect.
0: Yeah. And, and it sounds like it's complicated in a number of ways because of the benefits and the compensation. And you would certainly want to work with someone who understood all of the possibilities that might happen both now and in the future, because it seems like if there's going to be child support or something like that, it might have to be flexible according to the needs of the family in the future. Is that right?
1: Certainly. And there's a number of resources out there that every service member that is considering or going through divorce should look into and make sure that they understand. So even if they're unable to retain an attorney that works in military divorces, that they can ensure that they know what their rights are, what they're entitled to.
0: And John Cannon, are there some common misconceptions that people have about military divorce?
1: Yes. One of the most common misconceptions is that retirement in the military is like retirement from any other job. And it's anything but that.
0: How is it different?
1: Well, before 2019, the military allowed for a service member spouse to receive a certain percentage of just their military retirement based on what they retired as. So a person who was able to obtain a much higher rank at the time they retire than the time of a previous divorce would entitle their spouse to a percentage of their retirement pay at the higher rank, which has a higher income. So there's a basic pay scale that is basically an Excel sheet that has the number of years of service multiplied by the rank that a service member's at, and that tells you what their base pay is. In the former rule before the NDAA in 2017, the former spouse's share would be, as a numerator on top, the service years and overlapping military service, or years of marriage, and that would be divided by the total number of years of service. So a service member's spouse may be entitled to a much greater share based on that service member continuing on in their career and achieving a higher rank, which equals a higher amount of pay than the date that they were divorced.
0: Okay, so let me just see if I can understand what you're saying. The old rule was that there was a pretty simple formula where the divorced spouse would receive a share of the pension benefits that was related to the percentage of years of marriage over the percentage of years of service, and that that would often, because the marriage usually would have ended before the end of service, that would end up being that they were entitled to a greater benefit because as the service person stayed in the military longer, their rank might improve or go up, and therefore they'd make more money. And since the pension benefit is based on the latest years of service or the most amount of money you were making or the highest rank you had, then that is a benefit for the divorced spouse. Is that right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. So if someone were to make 20 years of service, however, be divorced at the 10-year mark, then the former military spouse would be entitled to the income or percentage of the income 10 years after divorce, what that person was able to achieve as an enlisted person or as a commissioned officer at the 20-year mark.
0: And so what's the new law?
1: So the new law is generally called the Frozen Benefit Rule. And the National Defense Authorization Act of 2017 created it. And it basically freezes that bottom number, freezes the denominator. So you have the top number being the person's years of service and overlapping marriage, But it stops the benefit that can be taken from the highest rank at the time of divorce. And that's typically called the high three rule. So you take, for example, an unlisted person who had reached the rank of E6, rather high but not nearly as high as they may get to, the former spouse would only be entitled to a share of that service member's best three years of income at the time that they were divorced to the rank they had at the date of divorce. Regardless of the fact that an additional 10 years of service, they reach E8, E9, potentially even reclass or commission as an officer and rise to you know, a field grade officer rank with substantially more retirement pay, that former spouse would be capped with the percentage they could receive or now is capped on the percentage they could receive from the rank or pay at the time of the divorce. So it's really protected service members and the service that they have beyond their divorce.
0: And what was the impetus for the change?
1: I think it was just an identification that this was a a gap in the analysis, that we had service members, like we discussed a moment ago, go through divorce like anyone else and unfortunately increasing rates in our country and in the military. And we had spouses getting substantially more than a service period of time that they were there to assist their service member. As I'm sure in New York, it's the case in Oklahoma, one of the presumptions of spouse support or receiving a marital share of retirement is that this person was able to accomplish these things based in part on their spouse being there to support them. So the NDAA in 2017, one of the things it did was try and take out the benefit being received by the former spouse for years after divorce, that they were not assisting that spouse in being able to serve our country.
0: It's interesting because the law in New York on pensions is as you is the old law essentially, and it is obviously a benefit to the former spouse to receive a higher percentage, even if many many years passed. And I guess there's some public policy in place that goes one way or the other. And it's kind of interesting to see the contrast there. What do you think about that?
1: I think it's very interesting. And it's like many other issues that there's a good argument for the alternative. A service member with 10 years that's reached a relatively high rank for that amount of service, may not have been able to do so or meet all the requirements of that service without their spouse there to be helping them and being their partner. And that would be a good argument to support that they should be entitled to the rank that a person would receive based on those overlapping years and the years beyond that.
0: Yeah, because even if it, in your original example where it's a 20 years of service and the first 10 years the service person is married, obviously they reach a level that is the base of creating the postmarital level. So it is, I don't know what the right answer is, I just think it's kind of an interesting change in approach from the powers that be.
1: Right. And one of the things to keep in mind is that the federal government, per usual, if you do not follow their rules or write things the appropriate way, then they will ignore them. And so if you represent a non-service member and you apply for a portion of that service member's retirement years after the divorce, the service member may completely deny you the access or the military may deny you access to any of that. And you may have to go back to court and try and receive a judgment or something that provides a benefit to you. The Defense Finance and Accounting Services or DFAS will only pay what one there's a legitimate order for and if there's a deemed election and then it's valid. And unfortunately, we see many, many times that non-service member spouses will lose their entitlement to potentially thousands and thousands of dollars. Just one example, a Lieutenant Colonel or an 05, that retires may be entitled to more than $65,000 of income a year as a retired service member. And a master sergeant or E-8 non-commissioned officer may be entitled to upwards of $45,000 of retirement. And if the non-service member doesn't clearly state in the decree their right and their percentage, then they may not be entitled to any of that and potentially be losing 20000 $30,000 every year for the rest of the service member's life.
0: Yeah, that is a serious risk. You're listening to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Catherine Miller. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM in Westchester County, New York, every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30, also available as a podcast on divorcedialogues.com. And I'm talking today with John Cannon. He's the founder of Cannon and Associates, and he, his firm focuses on military divorce and criminal defense in central Oklahoma. And John Cannon, if people are interested in learning more about military divorce and more about your practice, how can they find out more and get in contact with you?
1: Yeah, one quick point I failed to mention was the survivor benefit plan, and it has some of the same rules that apply to it. You can find all this on our website or online anywhere, but you can also fail to make the deemed election and entitle yourself to a portion of basically with a life insurance policy for every service member. Uh, so for non-service members, you need to make sure that you deem that election and that you notify DFAS within a year or you can lose that right. And as a service member, it's the right to remain silent. If it's not deemed, they don't get it. Again, like you said, I'm the founder of Cannon Associates. We provide fierce advocacy for military divorce and criminal defense in Oklahoma. If you or your listeners would care to visit our website, it's jpcannonlawfirm.com, and we have multiple resources, including articles explaining these frozen benefits rules and other things that may assist your listeners on navigating military divorce.
0: Yeah. So let's go back and talk about some of those other things, John Cannon, that you were just mentioning. So it seems like there's some other uh, pitfalls that could be missed in, in a military divorce on these benefits. And so let's slow down a little bit and kind of go back over what you were just talking about.
1: So the survivor benefit plan, just real briefly, is basically a life insurance policy for every service member. And it's basically a first in time, first in right. So the spouse of the service member must make what's called a deem election the DFAS, which we discussed a moment ago, within a year of the date of the divorce, where they lose that benefit, regardless of what the contract or the divorce decree states. And the service member, if it doesn't indicate who has that, then it's a benefit that the later spouse could acquire.
0: Okay. So let me ask you one thing. If you have a settlement agreement and it says something different than the frozen benefit rule or something different than what the standard language is, are you allowed to change it?
1: So the referencing the frozen benefit rule isn't the necessity. It's applying the correct calculations of number of years and numbers of marriage. But yes, there is the potential to seek a correction of that, but it's my firm's position that we've had some success in, that the other party cannot simply attack the spouse stating that, oh, and you're you're in contempt of court for not providing me this benefit that we contracted for, because it's the government that's denying it. And so there is the potential to seek a modification. But however, in our state, you have to show a substantial and material change in circumstances. And these rules were not changed at the time that you initially entered the divorce. So you could have been apprised and you're expected to know the law. Ignorance of the law is not a defense. And that's the fastest position on these issues as well.
0: So imagine you got divorced before they changed the rule and uh, you were expecting to receive the benefit under the old law. Would you receive that if you got divorced before then, or or are you grandfathered into the old law, or is, is there a change?
1: You're grandfathered into the old law if the language is correctly stated with DFAS's magic language or something to the effect that references the service years and overlapping marriage divided by total number of years of service. So, yes, it is a grandfathered in for people that finalized divorce before 2017.
0: And what happens if a service person remarries and you have now a divorced spouse and a surviving spouse when the benefit becomes payable or the service person dies?
1: That Basically, is- any interest that's already been divested can't be provided to that other spouse but they may be entitled to a percentage of the remainder. So that's legalese for the first divorced spouse, unless it's only a brief period of time and a substantial number of years. And the second spouse is typically going to receive more. So that was poorly phrased, but I'll do my best to restate that the math is simple. It's the number of years of service and the overlapping number of years of marriage. So a second spouse or a third or fourth spouse, unfortunately, we've seen sometimes, maybe in intolerant to a percentage, it's just a smaller pie that they're taking a cut out of.
0: It's my understanding that a military pension, a piece of that goes to the surviving spouse on death. Is that right? Or is that not always the case?
1: That is correct.
0: And so I guess then that the amount of pension they'd be the surviving spouse, if there's a divorced spouse also, would also, it would just be smaller.
1: Right. and. That's part of why DFAS requires the language to be submitted early on, similar to large corporations that you submit a quadro to for division of retirement. If they've got an order in place and it's valid for them, then they will divide the amount and pay it without further action.
0: And what happens if the former spouse, the ex-spouse, dies before the pension is payable?
1: Then that portion would be returned to the service member's.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So what are some other things that people should know about military divorce that that might be surprising or interesting?
1: So one of the greatest (laughs) benefits of being a military service member that I'm happy to say my family takes advantage of and my associate, who's a retired brigadier general, jazz officer, his family takes advantage of is TRICARE or health care. And wherever you fall in the healthcare debate currently, there's no question that military health insurance is a great benefit. However, that's not something that a former spouse or surviving spouse is automatically entitled to. There's something called the 20-20-20 rule, which means again, those numbers we've been talking about, the years of service, the years of marriage, and the years that overlapped. So if my spouse and I are married for 20 years and 20 of those years I'm a service member, then she would be entitled to full TRICARE health insurance for life. However, if the service member served 20 years entitling them to TRICARE, if they have 20 years of marriage, but the parties got married after the service member began serving, if they meet the 202015 rule, and that's that former spouse would only be entitled to TRICARE for one year, which is a huge change in, in that benefit.
0: Thank you so much, John Cannon. Thank you for being our guest and explaining some of the intricacies of military, military service and divorce. And thank you for your service to our country.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be with you.